get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F- that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Extra giddy up in the step. It is football week. I know we had week zero of college football last weekend. This is a little different. This hits a little different. I wish we had NFL this week as well. But the first week for KU football, first week for high school football here in the state of Kansas. That'll be on Thursday. You can hear LHS on KLWN. You can hear Free State over on 929 The Bowl. You can hear the KU game here on Friday on KLWN. We'll be out at Mama's Tamale Shop for a live show of RCST on Friday. Lance Leipolds was asked about naming a quarterback, as you'd imagine at his press conference today. Here's how he responded. We're getting there. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not we'll announce it publicly before kickoff is, is still to be determined, but uh, it's 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 working that direction. Mm, so the ultimate QB controversy brewing. I can only assume that Lance Leipold is referring to Chad Henney versus Shane Bouchelle. What a QB controversy they provided in the preseason. Uh, with the Chiefs, and wow, what a preseason for Shane Bouchelle. But in all seriousness, Lance Leipold saying that makes me think that, yeah, we're not going to hear about this until game time, whether it's we don't know until the guy literally goes out onto the field or we find out when they're announcing the lineups. And again, we've seen this before. I've said this before. I don't really understand the schematic advantage thing of saying, well, we're going to play this quarterback instead of this quarterback. I get it. From a standpoint of, well, Jason Bean is a lot different than a guy like Miles Kendrick in terms of what they're going to provide, so maybe it changes a little bit how the defense prepares. I just don't think it should really matter. You're playing an FCS opponent. You should beat them no matter who the quarterback is, and I think there might be a little more to gain just from a mental side of it, just saying, no, we don't care. Like we're just We just want to play our game, so we don't care what they think about our quarterback, but That's the prerogative. Maybe it does matter, and maybe for a team like Kansas, who has lost three games to FCS teams over the last decade, I guess from that standpoint, it does make more sense to maybe be more secretive and and try to gain an edge, even though not necessarily my cup of tea. 
But the way he answered that makes it kind of sound like to me that they might know who the quarterback is or they might know which way this is trending. Miles Kendrick seemed to be the guy for the longest time. It feels like Jason Bean, just kind of what you're hearing from around the program and, and so forth. Maybe he's the guy who's creeping up on him and maybe Jason Bean even ends up taking over the starting role. At this point, I feel like it's going to be one of those two guys. They did release a depth chart today, and it doesn't tell you which of the quarterbacks, as you'd imagine. Bunch of oars there. Miles Kendrick or Jalen Daniels or Jason Bean. It does have Kendrick on top, if you want to read between the lines there. But no, that obviously does not matter. Um, As far as the rest of the depth chart, since we're not going to get a quarterback answer, and I don't know, I did think it was interesting, too, in that answer, how he said that, you know, we're still discussing that. What's the discussion about? Is this something that boils down to ticket sales? Like, I'm being dead serious because I know there are probably a a good chunk of KU fans who, if you said, hey, we're starting Jason Bean, if that is actually going to be the starter, and again, I don't know, it might still be Miles Kendrick or even Jalen Daniels, And if they say it's Jason Bean, I feel like there would probably be more people who would buy a ticket to the game because they would say, oh, this is something we haven't seen before. This is a shiny new toy at quarterback. He's a guy who's super fast. Like, I'd like to see what he can bring to the quarterback position. Whereas maybe there's some people who, if Miles Kendrick gets the call, you know, and I I don't necessarily prescribe to this because I think we've seen it before where quarterbacks go to better situations and have more success. And I think that's the case with Miles Kendrick. You have better situation around him with the offensive line and the running backs and Lance Leipold and the new staff, then I think he can have more success at KU. But there would be some fans who maybe would see that and say, ah, oh, man, not this again. You know, and, and maybe that is the difference. So if, if that does factor in, then maybe you do announce it beforehand. I don't know if that's the reason why you would discuss it or if there's other reasons to discuss it, just having it out there, building hype, or if it has to do with having your players knowing who the guy is? Is it something where you can announce who the starter is to your team but tell them not to leak it? Is that an expectation that's reasonable because it would probably get leaked when you have over 100 kids on the team? I don't know what goes into that decision, but I thought that part of it was definitely very interesting. Now, as far as the rest of that depth chart, you look at the offensive line, Bostic at left tackle, Clark at left guard, Nowitzki at center, Grunard at right guard, and Cable do at right tackle with guys off the bench who I think you feel confident in and being able to rotate in, giving you depth. Michael Ford, Armaj Adams, Reed, Joey Gilbertson, backup right guard. He's a fifth-year senior. Adagio Lapelli is a super senior. Chris Hughes is a super senior backup left guard. You have so much experience on this offensive line, and we talked about the offensive line preview on Friday. We'll do the defensive line today. Seems about right in line on that offensive line with who you're kind of expecting to be in the mix there. Tight end, Mason Fairchild, Trevor Cardell. Heard a lot of good things about Trevor Cardell. The running back position, interesting on the depth chart. No Devin Neal on there, but it only shows two guys. And I think you look at Devin Neal. I mentioned this with, like, Puka Williams. His first year, Puka Williams, I think he was on the first depth chart, like, third string or something like that, and he ended up not playing. I think there was, like, an academic issue or something that kept him out of the game. But he was listed as, like, third string. But then once he actually hit the field, it was clear that, yes, this guy is that good. 
And I don't know if that'll happen with Devin Neal. And there's other really good running backs in that room. Felton Gardner and Amori Pesek-Hickson are listed as the top two guys. But I feel like when he hits the field, you're going to say, oh, we need to give this guy more carries. I could very much see that happening with a guy like Devin Neal. And even in this offense, you might not be listed on the two deep. Devin Neal is going to get carries. Devin Neal is going to get playing time. But you feel good about that unit overall. And I think that just furthers that, that your highest rated recruit is your third string guy. Makes you feel better about that room. The receiver room, I was a little surprised Luke Grimm was a Z receiver. I don't know. Maybe I just, again, uh, I guess pegging somebody into a, oh, he's the small white receiver. He's Wes Welker role, not the slot guy. But that is Kwame Lasseter on the outside. Tory Lachlan, a guy who was a former quarterback and unbelievable runner with the ball in his hands. He's the backup slot. I'll be interested to see what he can provide. Trevor Wilson, LJ Arnold, Stephen McBride, Luke Grimm are the other listed receivers. Those are all guys that we mentioned when we were doing our receiver preview. And then on the defensive side of things, we'll do the defensive line preview today, so we'll go over that. Um, Linebacker, I think it's an interesting position because it was one that KU struggled with last year, and there's a lot of guys that you look at and say they could be the answer, but there's still a lot of question marks because you don't know. Like Nate Betts, Rich Miller, Gavin Potter, Jay Deneen, Nick Channel, Taiwan Berryhill, those are all guys who give you pretty solid experience across those linebacker cores, but can they give you an improvement of what you saw a season ago? And then the only other thing really of note in this depth chart, um, outside of those things, the corners. Romello Dotson and Deuce Mayberry as the starter. Now, both those guys had been impressive in practice, but I think Jacoby Bryant and Jeremy Webb might have been the favorites to land the starting jobs. They're listed as the twos, and I think like the running backs, that just gives you more of an idea of, hey, maybe there are some dudes in this secondary. And a young secondary, so they're going to have their lumps this season. You know, when you look, Dotson's a freshman. Jeremy Webb is a super senior, but he's a transfer into the program. Deuce Mayberry's a sophomore. Jacoby Bryant is a freshman. Even the backups at safety who are going to get playing time. Like, Jason Gilliam is going to get playing time. He's a freshman. O.J. Burroughs is going to get playing time. He's an absolute pick machine. He is just a freshman. So you're going to be relying a lot on those two older safeties, which is good to have that at the back end to kind of control it because they're more of the quarterbacks of the secondary with Ricky Thomas, a super senior, and Kenny Logan, who's your leader in the junior. So that's definitely going to help with those young guys, but you're going to have your lumps, but there is still a lot of talent on that outside, and I think that's proof that a guy like Jacoby Bryant or a guy like Jeremy Webb are listed as the twos right now. Also, though, this depth chart will get changed the most of any depth chart just because... Like, Stephen Parker's not listed on the two deep. I feel like at some point this season, he will probably, I don't know, maybe end up being a key piece to the defense. Doesn't necessarily mean being a starter, but once you get game action involved, that changes things immensely. You know, there are certain guys who perform better in practice, certain guys who perform better in games, and once you have that, it starts to impact the depth chart a little bit more. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky is going to join us in about 25 minutes from right now. But on the other side, Lance Leipold spoke with the media earlier today. We'll let you listen in to that audio after this. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us now on the show. It's always more fun to talk Royals after good things happen. And they actually have been over the last couple weeks, including most recently with Salvador Perez. Uh, David, at what point would it take? Because obviously right now from 
the crowd of people who don't want to vote for guys on bad teams for MVP, there'd be no chance. But at what point would Salvador Perez cross over into that? Maybe he has a shot here. Oh, that's a good question. Um, the problem is Otani. I mean, it, 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 he's he's never going to pass Otani because Otani gets shut he, down today for the rest of the season. That, even so, though, I mean, he's got forty-one home runs. <laughs> he's got a hundred, what, hundred seven innings or something like that with a two point nine ERA. I mean, anybody trying to catch Otani this year, you you have to play for a first-place team, and be the only good player, but somehow make them win 106 games <laughs> to, to catch Otani. And so that, that's what stinks for Salvi this year because, I mean, there, there's not a great candidate on first-place teams. You know, the Rays don't have a superstar. I mean, they've got really good players. Don't, don't get me wrong, but they don't have a superstar. The White Sox are kind of piecing it together because of, you know, all the injuries. Jose Abreu was the MVP last year, but he hasn't had a great season this year. He's driven in a bunch of runs and all that, but, you know, it's, he hasn't been great. In the Astros, we, we saw them. They Honestly, they look, they look sloppy to me, but I, I think that they, they, don't have, they don't have that superstar. I mean, they have superstars. They don't have that guy who's just having a monster season for them either. Yuli Gurriel, maybe, but he's – you don't see first baseman with, what does he have, 13 home runs who win the MVP very often. So – I mean, it, it, if not for Otani, this would be the year. Um, but, I mean, if you really want to start having the conversation, I think you're probably talking about, oh, 54 homers and 130 RBIs. I think if you get to that, then, then they're at least going to talk about it. Um, but even so, man. I, That's such a high just, bar. It, it just stinks because this is the year like i said this is the year that there's not that guy on a on a first place team or a playoff team and and he's 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 gonna get some votes look he he's gonna finish higher than he's ever finished before um funny i i I remember back in i want to say it was 2011 off season um i said that salvador perez would get mvp votes before eric hosmer and people said oh you're wrong and then he I think Dutton gave him one in 2013 or something like that um, to make me right. I don't know if he did that for me or not, but uh, yeah, uh, he, he's going to finish higher than ever before. He, he I mean, I, I think he has a he, he has a legitimate shot to finish top five. I don't think I don't know if he will, but I think he has a real shot for it. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty crazy on its own, considering where the Royals are as a team. He has just yeah. been so dynamic, and when you add on, you know, I. I remember there was even a debate at the All-Star game. Now, I, I didn't want to partake in this, but about Yasmani Grandal or Salvador Perez when they oh, were both God. finalists. Yeah. I thought that whole thing was so stupid, and, like, I get it. You know, batting average versus OBP, like, okay. But at some point, that has to matter. And just Salvador Perez hitting all these clutch home runs and, and hitting the big slams, making somebody $25,000. I mean, a man of the people. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, and also, uh, you know, the, the framing numbers are bad for Salvi. He, I, I, I have my issues with Salvador Perez as a receiver. I have, I've not been quiet about them. Um, he's not a good framer, which what should that be considered? Should it not be? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I hate that you're, that you're looking at a guy and you're giving him credit for deceiving the umpire um, or not, not or credit for not, or not giving him credit for not deceiving him, whichever way it would go. Um, 
but <laughs> the world we live in. And, and I think there are times, um, and maybe this is a business decision at times, that Salvi gets a little lazy on blocking pitches. But that said, <laughs> not many catchers throw out 40% of base dealers. I mean, he, regardless of what, how you feel about his receiving, um, he throws he throws a lot of guys out when they try to steal. I think only 19 players have stolen on him this season, which is kind of crazy. So when you think about all the runners the Royals pitchers have let on, and only 19 have scored have stolen on Salvi, and you know it's he does he does so much that to get this level of offense that he's given, and and you know he's probably going to slow down at some point before the end of the season. Although it's only 32 games, so maybe not, but. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun since the break. I mean, the Royals are twenty three and eighteen, and I, I don't. I, you can probably attribute five of those wins directly to Salvi, maybe more. I mean, it, that's that's a that's that's a that's a pretty valuable player. So I guess long term, then, if there are the questions about the framing, and you have a guy like MJ Melendez, and and I don't know what his defensive acumen is coming. Uh, He's good. Up in the minors. Okay, so there we go. So leading into that, I mean, how soon do you make the decision to say, hey, we really enjoy what we're getting from a hitting aspect from Salvador Perez, and we don't want him to get weathered a little faster by having even more games behind the plate, and we're not even getting as good of a defense maybe as we possibly could just in terms of the framing. Do we make that switch and just make him a designated hitter? Well, you know, I don't – probably not just because you don't give a guy the $82 million. And and take him away from his primary position. But that said, you have a really cool opportunity with MJ Melendez to keep both of them fresh. Um, I mean, MJ Melendez, he has an opportunity to be an upper echelon catcher in the big leagues. And if, well, let's say, you know, next year is probably up and down. Rookies, as much as we want to believe they're going to come up and hit the ground and just be absolute superstars immediately. It doesn't always work that way. We know that, right? So let's say that next year is, is the learning year. 2023, the Royals can legitimately have two of the best six catchers in the American League. <laughs> that, that, that's crazy. And so you, you can look at a situation where you say, okay, well, Salvi, who did not have the bat to carry first base or DH before last season, um, now has that bat. The way he's hitting, if he can maintain this, he can absolutely be a DH and not cost you anything. Um, first base, if, if you know, if, if you want to throw him there, there's Nick Prado, so there's that issue, but that's another story. Um, MJ Melendez, theoretically, the way he's hitting in AAA and in AA this year has the bat to be a DH as well. And so, all right, you start to look at this and you can say, well, we, can, we can get Salvi 81 games behind the plate, Melendez 81, it doesn't have to be 81, 81, it could be 162, whatever it is. Keep both of them fresh. You always have a good defensive catcher. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's kind of a perfect situation, and you know Melendez bats lefty, and so there will probably be some days that he would need to sit, which allows you to get Dozier at DH or Merrifield a day off at DH or Witt a day off at DH, um, you know whatever it might be. And so I think that you're looking toward a timeshare. They mentioned playing Melendez other positions in AAA. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, maybe he's working on it pregame. I don't know, but that would help things too. But yeah, I think that there's an opportunity there to you really have two solid defensive catchers. And again, the framing, whatever, but there's also the effort, there's also a chance that there might be an automated strike zone soon, which makes framing irrelevant, right? So that, that doesn't matter anymore. And 
um, yeah, there, there's, the Royals have a chance to, to be really well positioned up the middle at both catcher and shortstop. I mean, not, not, not to get off Salviat that quickly, but I mean, they've got Mondesi, Bobby Witt Jr., and Nicky Lopez at shortstop. Not many teams have that kind of riches either up the middle. So they're, they're in a very good position right now. Talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Thoughts on Brady Singer since his return from the major or from the minor leagues to the majors? Yeah, uh, his first start wasn't very good. Obviously, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But um, I, I was encouraged. I've been encouraged the last couple. So against the Astros, he pitched against them twice in a row. First time he didn't really use his changeup, but he didn't need it. The Astros are kind of they, they don't have a lot of lefties, and so he had a really good slider, really good sinker in that game. Um, the second game it wasn't as good, but he went to the changeup more and. In my opinion, I don't especially care if it's good right now. If we get to spring training next year and it's bad, that's a problem. It's just the willingness to use it for me right now because that, that's been my issue with Singer the whole time is that he doesn't seem willing to do what needs to be done. And so he threw, I think it was 10 change-ups in his start against the Astros. Uh, he threw 12 yesterday. Baseball Savant listed 11. There's a four-seam fastball in there that there's no way that's a fastball. It was a change-up. Um, <laughs> he's, he's got some issues with it. He does. I mean, it runs arm side and up, which is not what you want from a change-up. You typically want some sink, and you want it to look like your fastball, which is a sinker for him. So <laughs> it's okay that it rides the way his sinker rides, but you just you don't want that up in the zone because change-ups up will get hit. But um, – at, at, at the same time, he's missing outside the strike zone, which is, makes it difficult to, to do any damage on. So that's a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been pleased with the work he's done. Um, he has not been given any favors by his defense. <laughs> um, that started against the Astros, I think it was three of the four runs were unearned. Yesterday, uh, the, first, the first inning run was unearned, and then he gave up a home run later that was obviously earned. But um, that's 11 unearned runs for him this year. So that, that's, been a, that's been a tough spot for him. But overall – um, I've been I've been really pleased with what he's done, uh, especially in those last two starts, because it's it just like I said, it shows there's a willingness, which we hadn't seen before. And, and if there's a willingness, then he's he's a talented guy and he's very competitive. I think I'm I'm very interested to see what that third pitch looks like in spring training. And it may not be a changeup by then, maybe a splitter or a cutter or whatever. But I, I I'm very curious to see how he comes to spring training next year. Starting on Wednesday, when the calendar switches over to September, the roster gets to move up from 26 to 28. Used to be 40, so obviously a pretty big difference. I like it dropping personally, but I also feel like that's a bit too small. I don't know. I I feel like why not just like a round number of 30? But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, who, I agree. Do, who do you expect to come up for the Royals with the two extra spots? Well, I think at this point, Mondesi is one of them. Um, he he was hitless in his first like seven or eight rehab games, and then has turned it on in his last four now. Um, he's pretty much ready. There's just no reason to bring him up tomorrow when you don't have to make a move if you wait until Wednesday. So um, I think he's a guy, they mentioned a position player and a pitcher. Now, originally they talked about it being a catcher and a pitcher to give a third catcher. Um, I could still see that being Sebastian Rivero also. Um, but I, I kind of wonder a little bit. So they've lost Jake Brent. He's on the injured list. They lost Richard Lovelady. He's on the injured list. They don't have a lefty in the bullpen now. Does it matter? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> does it matter if they win or lose? Not, not really. Um, I mean, it, it does. I'm actually working on something about how important late season wins are right now. But you know, it it, it really doesn't ultimately matter if they go 
71 and 91 or 74 and 88, right? <laughs> Still missing the playoffs. But um, I kind of wonder if they're going to get Daniel Tillo up to the big leagues. He just came back from Tommy John. Um, he was on his rehab assignment, and then they activated him and then and optioned him to double A. But he, he's been pretty good now in his last like 10 or 11, 10 or 11 cents in, in double A. I think eight and a third scoreless with eight strikeouts. He's, He's a guy I was really excited about before last season, and then obviously went down with the with the elbow injury. But I wonder if it's him uh, that you know they could also go with Junis, um, who finally came back from injury, had a really nice start for Omaha uh, Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. I don't know, remember exactly, but last week they could go with Coar. Um, I thought I thought uh, Tyler Zuber might be a guy they'd bring up, but they already brought him up for for Richard Lovelady. And then the other option is Dylan Coleman, who was a player to be named later in the Rosenthal deal last season and has been just bonkers good in the minors. Throws 101, great slider. Um, if, you, if you're betting on a closer in the organization, it's probably him. So he needs to be added to the 40-man of this offseason anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I my gut is it's either Tillow or one of the starters, but it, I could see Coleman. So um, it'll be interesting to see. Look, there also might be, it's August 30th, there's one more day that, that players can be added to other teams' rosters and still be eligible for the playoffs. So I would keep an eye on Irvin Santana, um, maybe Hunter Alberto, who the Royals really like, but is there a spot for him? I don't know. Um, these guys might be placed on waivers or already be on waivers and get claimed sometime before the game tomorrow so they can be in an organization and be on a playoff roster. And then, and then you're talking about other guys can come up. So... Um, that's definitely a possibility too, but I think if, if it's just two, it's Mondesi and one of those pitchers. It was if if it was uh, still forty guys. Do you think we'd see Wit and maybe some of the other guys come up in that situation? You know, I, I don't know, and, and the reason that I'm not so sure about it is because usually the AAA season ends on September 9th or whatever it is. It's going through September this year, and so like in some ways they've got to have a roster to fill out in the minors, and so that that kind of hurts things a little bit. Um, but also, that you know, the Royals really, really value winning in the minors, and these teams are in pennant races. So I don't think we'd see Witt. I think there's a chance we'd see – I think Dylan Coleman would be more likely um, on a 40-man push. I think there's an, a potential that we'd see Prado just because he needs to be added to the 40-man also, although I think he'd probably stay down too. Um yeah, I, I think that you'd what you'd really see more is guys like Kyle Isbell and Ryan McBroom and Tillo, who's on the 40-man. Um, those, those types of players just to get their opportunity in the big leagues. But I, I think this year would be different anyway, just because they got the late starts, they're having a late finish. But uh, in a normal season, I maybe. I mean, I, look, if they're saying right now, I'm sure internally they're going, okay, Bobby Witt's on our roster opening day on 2022. Let's get him some time in the big leagues if, if there wasn't the roster restrictions at the big league level and the extra month in AAA. So I think in a normal season, maybe, but I don't know. I think this year, probably not anyway. He's David Lusky. Check out all his work inside the crown. David, have a good rest of your night. I hope that with those extra couple hours without the Royals playing in Seattle, <laughs> you have some fun activity planned or maybe get a couple extra hours of sleep. I'm just going to close my eyes and, and enjoy the day off. <laughs> <laughs> he is David Lusky of Inside the Crown, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Depend on it. 
tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. What's happening? Welcome into another edition of Case of the Mondays here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, where we get to some of the stories that we might not otherwise talk about here on RCST. First up, Tyreek Hill, Usain Bolt, the saga continues. Can we even call it a saga? What is defined as a saga? Does it have to be like Lord of the Rings? Bolt said that Hill can't beat him. There was that part of it. He'd be willing to wager his gold medal if you'd remember if Tyreek Hill would be willing to wager his Super Bowl ring. He said, for me, I still think I would get him in the 40. Uh, and said, just to be safe, he'd like to race a little bit longer. Something like 40 yards. Or 70 yards, excuse me. Hill responded on Twitter over the weekend. He said, I know you're not from here, but I'm sure this applies all over the world. Scared money don't make no. Does that mean he's going to do it? I hope this happens. Obviously, Usain Bolt would probably have to train a little because he's a retired 35-year-old athlete. He's still in good shape, but he's not expecting to be running every day where Tyreek Hill is. But, like, Tyreek Hill, I think, was clocked at having, like, a 10-1-900 meter once, which that's really, really fast. But Bolt ran a 9-5-8. It's still another huge level there. I, I hope it happens. I mean, it's just fun to watch. I'd be all for it. Usain Bolt's like one of my favorite athletes of all time. Uh, the 2012 Olympics in London, when he absolutely dominates, and he said that all he ate at the Olympic Village was chicken nuggets. How could you not love that guy? But I don't know. Now you're talking about a guy who's, you know, this isn't prime Usain Bolt. Prime Usain Bolt wins this without a doubt. I do have questions because it's been how long since he competed in the Olympics? You know, five years. I think he was in 2016. He's 35 now. Still really fast, obviously, but not as fast as Tyreek Hill. Kind of in your prime in terms of speed. Art Sitkowski, you remember that name? Former Rutgers quarterback. He went off over the weekend for Illinois. And when I say go off or went off, it's kind of relatively speaking to Art Sitkowski. But he helped Illinois beat Nebraska. He went 12 of 15, 124 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. And this comes from the same dude who let KU blow them out who had that freshman season when he started and lost big to KU, had four touchdowns to 18 interceptions as a freshman and finished below 50% on his completion percentage. My favorite game from that season, Art Sitkowski faced Maryland and went two of 16 for eight yards with four interceptions. He had more interceptions than he had completions on 16 passes. This is proof... Even some of the worst QBs can get better with the right situation, with maturation, with seasoning, with experience, with playtime. Looking at you, KU, this should give you hope when you figure, oh, well, maybe we have a better staff now. Maybe we have a better offensive line. That if it is indeed Miles Kendrick is the starting quarterback, that you're going to get more out of him this year than you had maybe been getting in years past. It's also a showcase the time sometimes in the NCAA is just a flat circle. That KU Rutgers game with Sitkowski, it occurred in 2018. 
If you go look at Art Sitkowski's player profile on Illinois, or if you go to ESPN, you might be a little perplexed. Art Sitkowski is a sophomore. Is it a mistake? Is it a typo? I mean, I guess it's possible. 2018 as a freshman, 2019 as a sophomore, could have redshirted. He only played two games. Now you're redshirt sophomore in 2020. Transfer or COVID year, so you're still technically a sophomore. I guess it makes sense. It's just hard to comprehend that a guy we saw in 2018 looks so poorly is still going to be playing in 2023. And I can't really wrap my head around that. Uh, the Toronto Raptors signed Sviatoslav Mikhailuk. It's a two-year deal. So but this is ability for a guy who has been across three different NBA teams over the last three seasons. You might not have heard of him as much last year because he was on a bad OKC team, so it's not like they were on national TV a bunch. But he's averaged over 20 minutes a game the last two seasons. He's shooting 36% from three for his career. Toronto won't be great, but they could be good enough to make the playing game or be in a playoff series, and they tend to maximize with that NBA franchise role players as good as any team in the NBA. So that could be really good for Svee. But how odd is it looking back now at the 2017 Kansas team, 2017 team that went to the Elite Eight and lost to Oregon and Kansas City, a team that had the National Player of the Year in Frank Mason, a team that had a blue-chip recruit turned top-five pick in Josh Jackson. And yet, the two most successful NBA players have been the guy who was kind of the, the third option on that team with Devontae Graham, and then probably Svi Mikhailuk. And maybe that's sliding Jackson. He had a good year last year with Detroit. And maybe that's just kind of compared to expectations. But seriously, who would have thought that would have been the case from that team? That you would have said, yeah, the two best pros on the team are actually... Like, maybe you could have got there with Devontae, but that Svi would be a better pro than Josh Jackson or Frank Mason, you would not have taken that bet in 2017, let alone after 2018. J.K. Dobbins is out for the year after he suffered a torn ACL. Bad news, obviously, for the Ravens. Sucks a lot for him as well. I mean, you're talking about a guy who looked to be a breakout candidate as a young running back heading into year two. He played really well at the end of year one when he started to get more carries after he was a former highly touted pick out of Ohio State. But it also brought up the debate over should starters even play in the preseason, right? You have the side of things where it's what's even the point of playing these guys? You just risk getting them injured. Is it worth it? Because if your player's out for the year, it's just very unfortunate. And you'll lose that whole year over a game that didn't even matter, essentially. Now, there's also the other side of it where it's, well, we need to get, you know, in tune with ourselves. We need to kind of basically practice with other teams. But last year, there was no preseason, and you were able to do just fine. I'm sure some guys would say, you know, I actually was a little rusty to start the season, and other guys would probably say, no, it didn't really affect me. So it's probably a player-to-player thing. But I do think the more injuries you get in the preseason, and there's always injuries in the preseason like this. Now, I remember a couple years back, I think Jordy Nelson a torn ACL or something in the preseason. This is bound to happen. It's the same way it could happen on the, on the practice field. I guess, I don't know. I, I think that you're going to be playing football no matter what. You're going to be practicing. You're going to be working out. 
So yes, the playing in the preseason, it increases your chance of, I guess, getting injured. But you're still always going to have a risk of getting injured every time you touch the field. And maybe we shouldn't be playing the starters as much, especially at positions where you are more prone to injuries, like running back, like quarterback, receiver, basically all the skill positions. But I don't think it's going to completely go away, and this one injury isn't going to completely change that. High school football was on ESPN over the weekend, including a game on Sunday that featured IMG Academy, who is high school program that constantly produces these D1 athletes against high school that nobody could figure out some information about. The opponent for IMG Academy, and IMG Academy ended up winning 55-6, to six, or 56-6, to six, was Bishop Sycamore. They went 0-6 last year. It was their second season competing in football. But if you if you do some, like, searches online, it's, it's very hard to find information about this school, Bishop Sycamore. And... It's a online prep school. You know, this isn't college. This is a high school. It's doing like online prep school. The reason they got on the ESPN broadcast, they claimed to ESPN that they had a bunch of Division One prospects. And because there's not a lot of information on the high school and it's this online prep school, they weren't really able to confirm it. And so ESPN got into this game thinking, oh, look, we could have IMG Academy against this team who has a bunch of D1 prospects. This could be a really good game. And all of a sudden, it's an absolute blowout of a performance. Bishop Sycamore is down 30 to nothing in the second quarter. And this is what the broadcast crew said for ESPN. Bishop Sycamore told us they had a number of Division I prospects on their roster. To be frank, a lot of that we could not verify. And they did not show up in our database. They did not show up in the databases of other recruiting services. So it's okay, if that's what you're telling us, fine, that's how we take it in. From what we've seen so far, this is not a fair fight. And, and there's gotta be a point now, Luke, where you do worry about health and safety. I already am worried about it. I think it's, um, this, is, this could potentially be dangerous given the circumstances and the mismatch that we have here. And, um, and, and and quite honestly, Bishop Sycamore doesn't have not only frontline players, but they don't have the depth in case something were to happen to their roster with maybe a kid or two here throughout the remaining two and a half quarters of this football game. This is basically like the fire fest of, of high school football teams. They found a way to get this together. And I don't know, does ESPN pay these high schools to, to be on there? If so, even further, genius idea for them. So I guess congrats question mark for getting away with it but yeah that didn't really uh, go as as they planned and now nobody is going to fall for this again because now it's very public for bishop sycamore i don't know what the end game was there for bishop sycamore finally quick hit section of our case of the mondays 2022 ku commit grady dick won a gold medal in three by three u18 championships i remember in the past i thought if you were going to college you couldn't accept the gold medal because it was like taking you know, something for your athletic endeavors, basically like money. Now with NIL, you can definitely do that. So that's cool. Grady Dick can show up on campus with a gold medal. Jake Paul won his fight against Tyrone Woodley by a split decision. Woodley called for a rematch. Paul denied him initially, but then said he will if he gets a tattoo that reads, I love Jake Paul. 
not worth the rematch in my eyes, but I didn't watch it either, nor did I really care. But, hey, it's on Case of the Mondays, so I guess it got me a little. Mets fans and Mets players had a boo-off against each other. Mets fans booing the players. Javi Baez, Francisco Lindor decided, you know what? You're going to boo us when we for doing bad. When we start doing well, we're going to boo you guys. We're going to put thumbs down when we get hits, pointing at you guys. So that's going to go over very well between the fan base and the players. Could you imagine, by the way, if fans booed like ghosts? Like instead of y'all, boo! It was like, boo! Anyway, uh, final story on the quick hits. Redshirt freshman Hudson Card was named Texas quarterback, to which I respond, you don't say. A guy named Hudson Card was named the Texas starting quarterback. That's case of the Mondays. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Let's get to our KU defensive line preview on the other side. I'll have my inaugural, uh, I messed that word up, inaugural college football playoff rankings coming up. At a quarter till five, David Lawrence will join us at the top of the five o'clock hour. Today is defensive line preview day. And thank you to Lance Leipold, the KU coaching staff, for helping me out along the way here because they released uh, a two deep today. So I have a bit of a head start on what defensive linemen specifically to look at. So that defensive lineman depth chart, Kyron Johnson and Malcolm Lee are the starting defensive ends. Up the middle, you have Sam Burt and Caleb Sampson. And then as the backups, Hayden Hatcher is the backup at one DN spot. Jerome Robinson, the backup at the other. Three of those four defensive ends, Jerome Robinson's the exception. He's a sophomore, are seniors. And in the case of Kyron Johnson, a super senior. For the D tackles, you're talking about a senior in Samson, super senior in Sam Burt. That's a lot of experience there. And it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of game experience, but, you know, you're you're not starting freshmen there who aren't ready and, and don't have the bodies ready yet. The backups at the interior spots, Keenan Caldwell, 6'2", 333. Talk about a ready body for D1 in, in terms of that. Uh, Eddie Wilson, who's the transfer and a senior, along with Ron McGee. He's an oar with Eddie Wilson. Transfer from Buffalo, who's a senior as well. And then a guy who's not on there, who is still interesting to talk about, Stephen Parker. He was a former four-star recruit. This is his third year. You look at him making an impact. I think he will play into the rotation on that D-line. He will eventually, I'm sure, be on that too deep this season. He just kind of started late. I think he had an injury or, or maybe he was dealing with COVID protocols in the early portion of the camp season that prevented him from practicing. So obviously he's going to be a little bit behind some other guys. But as he catches up with more time, you would think the talent and the skills are there that he'll develop into a nice player for this team and eventually move up into that depth chart. Um but last year, what you got from the defensive line, you didn't get enough chaos or disruption last season. It, it was really problematic for KU, not just that the offensive line struggled, but that they didn't have much on either side of the line of scrimmage. So you would go game to game and look at the stats, and KU would give up way too many tackle for losses. The other team would have 12 tackle for losses and five sacks, which is not good for the offensive line. But then KU wouldn't do much either in terms of creating havoc on their end. They'd end up with three tackle for losses and one sack, which are not good numbers for an individual game. 
Overall, they rank 96th in the country in rush defense grade if you're looking at pro football focus. And that counts in everyone, so I don't know how much I want to look at that because the rush defense, you're counting the corners or the safeties or the linebackers coming up and run defense. But obviously, defensive linemen are the first point of attack against the run. They were just 117th, though, in pass rush grade, and that obviously is pretty dependent on those defensive linemen. 117th of the 128 teams that played. Other stats saw them rank last in the Big 12 if you want to look at more base stats as opposed to the PFF grades. They had just nine sacks in nine games all of last year for KU. And just to show you how far back that was from the next worst team in the Big 12, they basically almost got doubled up by ninth place. Ninth place, it was a tie. I guess they'd make it tied eighth between Texas Tech and Texas. They each had 17, and you had nine. And Oklahoma, who was in first for sacks in the Big 12, had 37. They more than quadrupled you with your nine. Lack of pass rush obviously contributed to KU giving up the most yards per attempt passing-wise in the Big 12. They also surrendered the most yards per carry, 5.8. Another number that is way more than next up. Kansas State was at 4.7. And then you have the tackle for loss numbers, which I mentioned a moment ago, and and those are huge numbers. Uh, the tackle for loss number is, I, I mean, when you just look at it in correlation to drives that stall out, drives that turn into punts or field goals instead of touchdowns, three and outs, whatever it may be, the correlation between drives that are unsuccessful with drives that have the defense getting a tackle for loss on you, creating a negative play, creating that chaos or that disruption, there's a huge correlation there, which means getting tackles for loss are obviously very important, right? It's a big win for the defense. Technically, holding the offense to two or three yards on a play is a win for the defense, meaning if you hold them for negative yards, that's a huge play. But KU ranked as the 108th in the country in tackles for loss per game. That was at 4.7, and also the worst among Big 12 schools. Ninth was Texas Tech, who was a full tackle for loss in front of you at 5.7. And from a unit that you had all those struggles that I just mentioned statistically last year, now you lose DeJon Terry. Now you lose Marcus Harris. Terry was one of your top run defenders. Didn't give you much in the pass rush game. Harris was your second best defender overall by pro football focus grade and was third on the team in run defense. He actually didn't have a very good pass rush grade either. So you might be losing Harris overall, but in terms of what you got pass rush wise, and you could argue, I mean, it might be better at those two spots this season. But overall, even despite all those deficiencies from last year, even despite losing those two players who you think would have been starters on this year's team, and Harris might be a starter on Auburn. Haven't seen what Terry's doing at, at Tennessee, even despite all that. I still think this unit could be pretty solid for KU. I think this might be the best unit on the defense. I think it's, I don't know, the secondary is interesting because I think you have the most talent in the secondary, but there's a lot of youth in the secondary. There's more experience on the defensive line, so I could see it being the best unit on this defense. Here is Quan Drake, the defensive line coach, talking about his expectations. Well, the biggest thing is making sure everybody comes together as a group, as a unit, fighting together as a team, 
and then making sure that those guys doing the little things. And that's what we always talk about. Making sure we're on time, doing the little things. And on the field, making the plays that come to you, not trying to overdo anything and make anything. And I told him, anything that you do wrong right now, it's my fault. It's not on you, it's on me. I'm going to fix it for you. Just tell it to me, and we're going to find a way to get better. So I mentioned Steven Parker, and he's kind of the wild card here. Like I said, he's not listed on the two deep. But he's the guy I think you circle him and, and Kyron Johnson and say they could have the biggest jumps. You know, players, could, I think, will get better. But in terms of just the biggest jumps, like Steven Parker was a guy who a season ago, you look at some of his grades, he was 49 overall on pro football focus, 51 against run defense, 59 in pass rush. But he's going to be used differently now. He played 305 snaps of defense last year. 67 were in coverage. He was being used as an outside linebacker a lot in the 3-4 system. Now that it's a 4-3, he's going to get his hand in the dirt and be able to use some more of his athleticism and some more of what made him a high-level recruit, in my opinion. And maybe that'll help him a little bit. You know, he could have a big jump. But as far as the guys who are on that depth chart specifically, like if we look, let's look at the defensive ends first. So Malcolm Lee and Jerome Robinson. Um at one defensive end spot. Malcolm Lee on Pro Football Focus had a tough season, 44 grade. He struggled a lot against the running game, but he is a guy who seems to have been a big beneficiary of Gildersleeve. And they need him to have a good year. You've heard him described as kind of the hammer of the defense. They need him to have a good year, but he was a guy who came in with pretty solid acumen coming out of juco of what he could possibly bring to the team and this is you know your last year you expect big things from a player in that situation um jerome robinson played limited snaps last year got 66 snaps of action a season ago he uh had pretty solid i mean if you're talking about from a freshman pretty solid grades overall and then you have hayden hatcher who again limited snaps 89 snaps i don't know what I want to do with that, but um, had good run defense grades, wasn't the best pass rusher. I'd imagine he will be more in those run defense grades. Kyron Johnson is the guy that you look at in the position and say that, yeah, he's the guy we're looking to to be the best player here. And I think he's another guy you look at in the same way I said with Steven Parker. You move him to that defensive end. If you look at Pro Football Focus, he had a 73.3 pass rush grade last year in 128 snaps of doing so. There were seven players for KU last year that logged at least 70 snaps or more of pass rush. And that was of those players by far first place. Second was DeJon Terry all the way down to 61. And yet, despite that, Kyron Johnson was just fourth among KU players in pass rush snaps. You would think, oh, hey, you're our best pass rusher. Let's get you more pass rush snaps. But that did not happen. This year, it's going to be the case. They move him to the defensive line. He gets his hand in the dirt, and he can use that 4-3-8, 4-4 speed to try to cause havoc around the edge. I think we're in a big season for Kyron Johnson, and the biggest question is how he can do against the run. I think he's going to do well against the pass. I think that you know he graded out as a really good tackler. The run defense is going to be the big key for keeping him on the field as much as possible and getting into those situations where he can rust the passer. He's only 6'1", so that's going to be tough for him to do so. But if you can hold on those rundowns, he could be a problem on those passing situations. Got a chance to catch up with Kyron Johnson at KU Football Media Days. Here is that conversation. 
Here with Kyron Johnson. I remember we had you on one of our shows. It might have been when you were a freshman. Mm -hmm. And you said that after football, you want to be a brain surgeon. Is that still the goal after football? Yes, it really is still a goal. But also, I'm, I'm not after just that as well. I'm also after doing something in business or project management. Stuff, stuff like that my mom is into right now. It's just, I'm trying to do various things. It's not just one thing. So, so have you talked to, I, I was talking to Nate and he said he wants to be an entrepreneur. Have you guys talked about working together at all? <laughs> I have not talked to him about that. I know him and Ricky talk a lot about mm -hmm. that, though. Me, I, I have talked about, like, how if I'm going to be a brain surgeon, I want to at least run my own private practice and stuff like that. But I have to get there first. I have to go through the work that it takes to get there. So it's just like, as I'm in football now, I'm just waiting until, like, that time has come for me. Just play football as long as you can yeah. and then move on from there? Is yeah. that the plan? Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the main goal for me. But getting an education as well so like right now i'm taking classes that can help get my project management and like that uh, or scrum masters basically and so like and with that because i know becoming a doctor it takes vigorous time out and like with being football it's like the two you can do the two but like it's a difficult yeah. it's difficult as all i can be so it's just like that's why i chose to do like a little a little side road to um, project management and then also pursuing my career in the, in the nfl so can we can we get the nickname Dr. J for you here? Yeah, I, I, I like that name. Dr. J, that's, I love that name. I, I, I use that name for everything. <laughs> I love it. Uh, as far as the, the position group with the DNs, what's the biggest improvement you've seen with the new staff so far? Uh, it's the fact that we got a bunch of depth within, like, uh, what we what we do. It's like we got guys just, like, lined up and ready to go. No matter, Like, if I was to go down, another player would hop up. If he was to go on out, another player would hop up. That's that's the main thing I like about it. And not only that, but like the fact that like for us D linemen or defensive end and D tackles, we like I tell everybody else here, we have Coach Drake. And Coach Drake is a huge major part in how we go about things. Awesome. Well thank you, Kyron. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, Kyron is honestly one of my favorite players on the team. Just to talk, I mean you know, I'm there. He wants to become like an entrepreneur who owns his own practice for brain surgery. Like, you don't see that from football players a lot. And just kind of a refreshing guy to talk to. I hope he has a good year. Speaking of his coach, he mentioned at the end, Quan Drake. Here is Quan Drake talking about Kyron Johnson. Uh, well, the biggest thing I'll tell you about Kyron Johnson, we call him Uncle Pastor. Because <laughs> he's like the uncle of the group, kind of been here a little while, very wise. Call him pastor. He prays like like a like a pastor or a deacon in the church, really bringing everybody together. Uh, it's kind of really been part of his whole makeup. It just comes out, you know, if you watch uh, Kyron just around the guys or whatever, you know, the guys are always play the young, more hip music. Kyron's going to find old stuff. He's going to find some Al Green, you know, say so he's going to go digging in the crates and he's going to start slow singing and dancing. And it gives a kind of an older uncle, big brother feel that brings guys together in a different way. Yeah, and like I said, just love getting to talk to Kyron Johnson. As far as the on-the-field stuff, his defensive coordinator, Brian Borland, talked about him as well. Well, we've kind of we've kind of put him in at a, at a one of our defensive end spots. He is literally might be the fastest guy on our team, and he's uh, you know so we're trying to put him in a position that utilizes um, his size, his speed, his burst. Uh, that's a that's a really good position where he's playing for us to do that, where he can. Uh, hopefully put some pressure on the quarterback, but he'll get a chance to, you know, uh, occasionally, you know, that guy drops into coverage and things as well. So um, I think we put him in a spot where he feels comfortable, he likes, and where his abilities will really suit him the best. 
so yeah, he is kind of the guy that you look at and say, if somebody is to emerge from this group as like a star, when I say that, like an all Big 12 player, I guess would be the way of putting it, he's the guy you look at. But again, I think it comes down to how you're going to do against the run on those first couple downs to allow you to get into those pass situations where Kyron Johnson can take advantage of those good pass rushing abilities and his speed to get out there. But he could be in for a really good year, and if he is, then you're talking about a possible NFL player. That's for sure. I know, like, on hard knocks, Zer Kamara was out there, and I think Kyron Johnson has probably had more of an impact here at KU than a guy like Zer Kamara. Um, some other players that, you know, when you look at the interior of the defensive line, Eddie Wilson and Ron McGee are both interesting, listed as backups. They're an or behind Caleb Sampson. But both guys that are going to get time. I mean, Eddie Wilson had a really good year with Buffalo. Ron McGee comes in from Buffalo as well. And Ron McGee has been getting a pretty good amount of hype from some of the coaches. Here's Brian Borland talking about McGee. Ron McGee is uh, one of our defensive tackles. He was, you know, had a, had a lot of injury situations with us at, at Buffalo. I really thought he always had a heck of a lot of ability. He just had a hard time staying healthy. He finally, you know, came in this summer and, uh, and, and was healthy and uh, has been healthy, has really uh, added a lot of solid muscle mass. Uh, he's, he's probably our, he's our fastest, most explosive defensive lineman that we have, testing-wise. So, uh, again, he just needs time and repetition. That's really what he needs, and I, he's getting it right now, and I, I hope it'll it show itself down the road here. Yeah, he's the guy that I could really see coming on as the season goes on. Lance Leipold talked more about Ron McGee. Ron's had a really good offseason in the weight room. You know, Ron came off surgery uh, right after last season. Um, still working through some of that at time time with some soreness. Um, you know, he's he's learning the system a little bit. You know, uh, Quan Drake is. You know, there's a little bit different in, in some of the the teaching and and the techniques done. And you know, I, I think he's slowly making progress. But uh, you know, he, he's in a competitive battle to get himself in the rotation. And and like I said, any of those young men that came came from Buffalo or somewhere else into this program from, from anywhere is understanding that nothing was promised to them and, and competing. But, um, you know, Ron's test numbers and, and athleticism shows that, uh, uh, you know, he has the makeup uh, to be to, to be someone that can help us. So, yeah, I, I think you, you feel pretty good about the interior as well because you have a lot of bodies you can rotate in. I mean, if Eddie Wilson, Ron McGee are your backups. That's Eddie Wilson's an all-Mac pick from a season ago. So Caleb Sampson, another guy on that defensive line who could be pretty solid for them. Sam Burt was a guy that, just in talking to a bunch of the different players, I, I asked a bunch of them, like, who's the strongest guy on the team? And the co most common answer that I was getting was Sam Burt. Here's Quan Drake, his coach, talking about him. Sam Bird is like having an extra coach on the field. Accountable, older guy. You know, he got married in the spring. So, you know, he, he's, like, he's like Daddy Bird or whatever. So he's been a good uh, instrument to our entire universe, entire program. Just being an older, more mature guy, it gives everybody else a sense of fatherhood inside the group. But it's like a big brother uncle to everyone else. So his leadership is really monumental to coach in his whole culture. You're talking about a guy who was a former walk-on, earned his way onto a scholarship, one of the strongest guys on the team. Here's the leadership talk there from Quan Drake. And when you look at Burton Sampson, plug in the middle there, they actually had, you know, okay grades on Pro Football Focus a season ago. Uh, 67 run defense for Burt, 66 for Caleb Sampson, 74 tackler for Burt, 71 for Sampson. And again, I, I believe like 60 is basically like average. Um, so, you know, above average there. Pass rush, they were right around that 60 grade mark. 
They both had solid seasons, and now they're back for another year. So, like I said, I think you feel good about this defensive line group overall. Is it as good as the group with, like, Dorrance Armstrong and, and Daniel Wise? I don't know about that, but I definitely think it's deeper than that unit all the way through. I think there's more guys that you look at and say we can trust them as coming onto the field, and we have more experience overall throughout the entire defensive line. And they need that because you have to start getting into these third and long situations. You have to stop the run on early downs, especially against all these teams in the Big 12 that have these stud running backs, Bajon Robinson, Brees Hall, Deuce Vaughn, whoever Oklahoma is going to throw out there, whether it's Kennedy Brooks or Eric Rain. You go on and on and on down the list of all these great running games in the Big 12. You have to be able to stop that so you can get to these third and longs and activate a guy like Kyron Johnson's. That is your defensive line preview. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David Lawrence joins us in about 20 minutes from right now. But on the other side, my first college football playoff rankings of the 2021 season after the week zero of college football. I'm Derek Johnson. This is RCST. In the world of college football, where chaos reigns supreme, one man, one myth, one legend will sort it all out with his college football playoff rankings. This man's name is I love sleeping in on Saturdays and I love college football games. You're listening to Derek's College Football Playoff Rankings on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You need to go back to whatever the hell you was doing before you got on the radio. Let's get to the rankings now. Oh, yeah, that time of year, another edition of my college football playoff rankings. Nobody's in here to contest with me on this, so I guess you just got to go with whatever happens here. This might get a little too crazy. I always love doing this after week zero because we only have a very limited amount of teams. That just makes it even more exciting. So without further ado, the post-week zero college football playoff rankings in at number eight, Southern Utah. This is a great team name, by the way. They are the Thunderbirds. I wish more teams were more creative with their team names. But of all the teams that lost, the Thunderbirds scored the second most points. They had 14 in a loss to San Jose State. And if you just take the score from the second quarter, they only lost 17-14 against a strong San Jose State squad. So they are in the early rankings as one of the better losers in at number eight. In at number seven. Nebraska, the Huskers started off the year very disappointing once again. This time, losing to a team with a new staff at a school projected to win around three games. The game ended 30-22, to but it took everything in Nebraska's power just to get it that close after Illinois led 30-9 to near the end of the third quarter. Still, Nebraska, of all the teams that lost, had the closest loss by eight points, so... They're still in the hunt. They're still number seven. Scott Frost, round for now, which brings us to number six. Number six, the odds that Scott Frost gets bought out of his contract and fired. Here are Scott Frost's records at Nebraska. Four and eight, five and seven, three and five, and now 0 and one. You add that all up, that's 12 wins to 21 losses. And this year, their over-under win total was set at six and a half with that one being one they were supposed to win, meaning now it's looking like a four, five, or six win year once again for Nebraska. Now, 
If he was fired at the end of the season, he'd be owed $20 million. That's part of why that whole analysts on the field thing possibly came out, cause for firing, like what KU did with David Beatty. $20 million is a lot of moolah, though, especially when you add on whatever it costs to hire a new coach. Pay his buyout and pay his salary. It's not insurmountable, but it does present a roadblock well after that showing, you know, with Nebraska on basically the, I would assume most watched game of the weekend is a power five game and a nice block in the middle of the day on a Saturday with no other games on. It seems to me like there is more than a 50% chance that Scott Frost gets let go before it was probably below 50%. Now it's above 50%, which above 50% is better than an 0-1 team like Nebraska and Southern Utah, which is why the odds Scott Frost gets brought out of his contract and fired are in at number six. Number five on the list, San Jose State taking down an FCS foe. Not going to give you too much love, but we do have Southern Utah ranked eighth, so kind of uh, back and forth there between the two of those. Nick Starkle continues to impress. He had a 95 QBR for the Spartans in the game as San Jose State averaged over 22 yards per completion. But what keeps them out of the four is giving up too many points compared to some others, even them not playing an FBS team. They played Southern Utah. They gave up two touchdowns. They also missed two field goals. Did Southern Utah. Could have been 20 points. Style points matter. You're not in to the top four. The number four team who is in... The Illinois Fighting Illini, the Fighting Art Sitkowskis, the Fighting Brett Bielema's, the top Big Ten school right now. I mean, just look at the conference standings. They would be winning the Big Ten. That's a pretty big deal. They beat Nebraska 30-22. to Art Sitkowski was somehow good. The defense came to play for the Fighting Illini. Wasn't the biggest win among teams playing. And yes, you do get penalized for not having enough style points like San Jose State, but they still did beat a Power 5 opponent, which gets them in to number four. To the top three of the list we go. Number three, UCLA. The Bruins had a 44-10 win over a seemingly really solid Hawaii team, which looks good for UCLA. They ran for almost 250 yards as a team. Most impressive, though, was the defense. It held a what in years past has been a high-powered Hawaii offense with Shavon Cordero, Calvin Turner. They averaged 3.6 yards per play. UCLA looks ready to take on LSU this next week, but they're still not in the top two. That's because in at number two is the UTEP Miners. University of Texas El Paso was the only team to win a road game on Saturday. That's right, every other team at home won. That earns you brownie points. It's not fair to play on the road. And by the way, they are miners as in coal miners. Somebody asked me this question, not Miners is in like a young adult. Could you imagine if that was their team name? Anyway, 30-3 to was their win over rival New Mexico State. Receiver Jacob Cowing didn't cow down to the opposition. Five catches, 158 yards, and a score. UTEP in at number two of the rankings behind that road win. The only team ahead of them, the number one team in the post-week zero college football playoff rankings, that would be the Fresno State Bulldogs. Fresno State is tied for first in the NCAA in points per game at 45. They are number one in points allowed per game 
after earning a shutout against UConn and giving up zero points. They have the biggest margin for victory of any team in the country with the 45-point victory over Connecticut as well. Stats like Fresno State. Add to it, UConn was undefeated last year. And sure, that's basically because they opted out of the season, but they, you know, didn't lose. Didn't show any shortcomings last season. And now they got walloped. Has to count for something. I mean, it's harder to beat a team off a bye week. Well, how about a season-long bye week? Now try beating them. Well, they did. 45-0. Running back Ronnie Rivers is my early Heisman leader. He gets used all over the field. Running back, receiver. He had one play where he caught like a post route and it looked like there were like five defenders around him. He went in and scored. He wound up with 15 touches for 124 yards and a touchdown in the game. Fresno State in at number one of the early college football playoff rankings. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lawrence, a color analyst for the Jayhawk Radio Network, joins us on the other side. This is 5 o'clock hour, Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Four days away from the first KU football game. Actually, four days and a couple hours at that. KU taking on South Dakota. Joined now by David Lawrence, color analyst for another season of the KU football team. David, is this time of year feel anything extra different for you heading into the football season? Another one for you at the helm. Uh, how many years is this for you now? You know, Derek, I was adding that up. Um, it's been 44 years minus three. So I guess that's 41 years as a uh, player, coach, uh, did cable television and Jayhawk Radio Network. Uh, my first year on the air, I was actually a coach and an analyst with Tom Hedrick. And we had a kind of a student intern as our sideline guy for home games. And uh, very confident, and I thought, man, this guy knows what he's doing. And uh, he ended up showing he had some talent. His name uh, is and was Kevin Harlan. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that was 1982 when Tom Hedrick said, hey, Coach Fambro, um, you've got a graduate assistant that I would love to have as my analyst. And Fam said, yeah, that's fine. And uh so it was just like, wow, out of nowhere, didn't study broadcasting. But, uh, you know, it, when you look at it, the, the, there would be no one more uh, prepared than the guy that uh, broke down tape of the people you're playing. So uh, even though I was very raw, very raw as a analyst, I certainly knew when it came to our team and the other team because uh, – I went to practices every day and broke down tape at night. So there you go. So, yeah, I'm excited every year, Derek, every year. Kansas football is close to my heart. Uh, I think you know me well enough uh, to know that. And um, But as we talked off air, there is a different feel to this. Um, there are things that I'm saying about this guy that I haven't said, you know, going back to Mangino. And there's reasons for that, too. So uh, I am extra excited. Uh, the, you, you know, one thing, it's interesting, Derek, there, there's a, a big player reunion. Uh, Coach Leipold's opening 
the doors to bringing players back and going to help them with the tailgate, the social hour, and having them to breakfast the next day. But, and these players are all in because they are, you know, they're getting to an age where, man, I want to see, I want to live to see Kansas football go back to being a good program again. And, uh, and they all feel, they're all juiced. Uh, we think we have found it. I'm certain we found it. So, yeah, for all those reasons, uh, I'm always excited, but even more excited. And the first opponent is South Dakota. Have you had a chance at all to kind of dive into the tape of the Coyotes yet? Is that something you can do even in a first game of the season? Well, because they have like 21 of 22 starters and and uh, special teams returning, I think you can get more uh, dependable tape. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a very different... Uh, set up uh, the Coyotes didn't play in the fall but they got to practice January, February for a four game spring season and uh, Kansas did get to play in the fall and they had a 15 day spring practice but it was not with their head coach so uh, you, would, you would think that's a big advantage for South Dakota I mean all that goes out the door when you kick off but, uh, you know, Coach Leipold and his staff, I can tell you this, I've never seen a team get more done in a two-hour window as far as guys getting from drill to drill, uh, getting things done, knowing where to go, even their water breaks. I, can, I see them in an orderly fashion come over, they're getting water, and they're being coached up by their position assistant. I mean, they've done a great job with that. Uh, so South Dakota uh, did not have a lot of success in, in the spring. They were one and three. But uh, as I mentioned before, they have so many players returning. And um, they're going to be a, a veteran group come in here. Uh, they want to run the ball better. They want to stop the run better than they did in the spring. They lacked in that area. And certainly Kansas lacked in in most every area last year. So uh, uh, it'll be a great test. Yeah, what is it you're going to be most looking forward to seeing uh, in the game? I know for a lot of people, they're just saying, well, I want to see who the quarterback is, and if it's a new guy, I want to see how he is. But I don't think you operate right like that. I know I personally am most interested in seeing the offensive line, which I don't know if this is your answer as well, just because last year it was such a struggle, and I just feel like for you to have proper – movement forward as a program and to properly evaluate some of those other positions like the quarterback you need better offensive line play and based on the hire you have of Scott Fuchs coming in along with some of the transfers you bring in growth of certain players you already had in the program I'm excited to see what the offensive line looks like what is a certain unit that you're excited to see on uh, Friday night yeah and I listened to your show on Friday so uh I, I know that you care about the offensive line Derek, and I'm, I'm excited that you care about the offensive <laughs> line. And, and, yes, that along with the linebacker core probably have the most room for improvement, but uh, perhaps the most, improve, uh, most important part is the offensive line because it's a team within a team. And like I heard with a lot of things that you said individually, you know, we're seeing some guys. And, and you know, Derek, we had some guys last year. What the team failed to do last year, I, I don't think the offense – 
as a whole, and I'm not going to go any further than that, uh, but the offense as a whole was not on the same page. At, and that's, that's just it. That they weren't on the same page. I think our offensive line was better than what they showed. Individually, we had and have some guys like Malik Clark, Chris Hughes, uh, and others that uh, individually can be good player. Armand Reed Adams and, uh, uh, of course, uh, the other tackle, which is uh, Cable Do. I mean, these guys have some skill levels. And uh, I, I think the just going back to what I said before, the offensive line in uh, Coach Fuchs, he is all about Kotelnicki, the offensive coordinator, and, you know, Lance Leipold. I mean, these guys, they have a culture that they develop together. I mean, they are, of course, in harmony with each other. And so it's not like there's ever going to be a time where the offensive line and the quarterback position, running back position, receiver position, that they don't know where each other is at. And I think uh, the offensive line is a team within a team, and I think you will see them compete together, you know, not just as individuals, but make sure they have a hat on a hat. Um, I, I expect to see less false starts and less unblocked players. And those two things will get you beat. They will get TFLs. And I thought uh, Kotelnicki, the offensive coordinator, said it best, kind of revealed a little bit who he is. He said, yeah, I'd like to have good plays, great plays, but it's more important to us not to have bad plays. And bad plays would be false starts and unblocked players for TFLs, which also cause fumbles. So uh, I expect to see less of that. And, um, and, and so, yes, offensive line is critical. I think they will take a tremendous leap in 2021. And uh, the, their first test, obviously, will be Friday. I was previewing the defensive line on today's show. What are your thoughts on, on that unit overall? You know, on paper, I would I'd have to say that, uh, and this is just my observation and watching these guys last year and a little bit this year, that, um, you, you know, as far as quality depth and quality, uh, they might have the lead now. Of course, we, we might be saying a whole different tune uh, next week. It might be the tight ends or receivers uh, or that young secondary. But, but that defensive line, I, I think, it, you know, you can go too deep with some guys that have some quality. I mean, Kyron Johnson, uh, you know, I think at the end of last year, he's, he learned how to be a football player. And we've said for years, I mean, this guy has the tools and the measurables to be uh, as good as anyone in this conference. And that's a mouthful, right? But we saw towards the end of the year him really developing into a good football player and, you know, him to be able to make some hits, some sacks, some TFLs, cause uh, fumbles uh, is uh, paramount. Behind him is a veteran, Hayden Hatcher, who I think's had a great fall camp. Sam Burt, the inside tackle. He is, he is an all-American, academic, uh, charismatic, character type of guy from Abilene, Kansas. I mean, it's exactly who you want leading your team, a guy that has bought in. He's got himself physically in great shape. He's a native Kansan, and uh, he's a guy that's going to back up everything that he says on the field. Um, Caleb Sampson uh, at the other tackle position, I mean, this is a three deep because you've got Eddie Wilson, 
I think he was like an honorable mention all league in the MAC transfer from Buffalo. Ronald McGee also significant snaps at Buffalo. I mean, you've got quality depth there that I think are going to be able to play at this high level. And then on the other end, Malcolm Lee, a tremendous uh, fall camp so far. Um, I, I think he is going to be a, um, a, a really a nail, a staple at that other end position. And behind him is a future star uh, in sophomore Jeremy Robinson, who had a tremendous spring. Uh, so these guys, you know, w- w- when you're looking at, that quality and depth that is proven, proven somewhat at, at in this league and in the MAC, I, I think it would be fair to say that the defensive line position would be that position. Talking with David Lawrence here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, a, a common phrase we've heard so often in this preseason in regards to the offense is the wide zone. As somebody who played football, what specifically does that mean to you? And how beneficial do you think that could be to Kansas? Well, I, I think it is similar to what we have seen. You see, you see it in college football uh, and even in the league, uh, a, a, a stretch play, a zone stretch. And, and, and basically you've got, you know, the offensive line that's going to go at an angle uh, and go to a, like a 45 degree path and, uh, have a zone as far as taking care, making sure you have a hat on a hat. Uh, if you've got some kind of twist, then you've got guys, you know, picking that up. And uh, as you get out wide, you know, it, it opens up natural running lanes and it allows the running backs to choose the path that they want to take. It might hit way outside. It may hit right over the tight ends uh, behind or could hit inside the tight end. Now, in saying that, maybe the most important part is that you cover up the backside because the way to make that play go bad is to have some kind of stunt on the backside and you don't pick it up because the play is not going to be like one of those quick hitters, you know, right up the middle because it is going to hit just a little bit wide. And so it leaves yourself somewhat vulnerable to people coming off the edge on the backside to uh, get into your legs from behind, and that'll kill you. Uh, but uh, I think it's a very effective play, and uh, I think it's a great play to have as one of your staples, and I can't wait to watch them execute that live at David Booth, Kansas Memorial Stadium on Friday. Yeah, isn't it funny that, I mean, we think back to the Big 12 from a decade ago, 15 years ago, and it was air raid heavy and quarterback friendly, and it still is to a certain standpoint. Like, there's still these really good quarterbacks and really good offenses in the league. But if you actually look into it now, like this year, last year, year before, a lot of these offenses have kind of transitioned to being not necessarily run heavy, but the running game actually kind of is like the stable. Like, if you talk to an Oklahoma analyst or Oklahoma fan, they'll tell you how much the counter is kind of the staple of their offense right now. Or with Texas, you have Bajon Robinson, this young running back. With Iowa State, you have Brees Hall. Kansas State has Deuce Vaughn, and they've obviously been a good running team for for so many years now. It's kind of odd to me that we have kind of shifted into the Big 12 is almost like a running league now. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure you followed a little bit about uh, Buffalo football and what I like about where they've been, and Kodo Nicky is, 
is they've got this incredible novel idea that, hey, if you've got a team that can run block and you've got some depth at running back, then, yeah, you're going to try to run the ball more. And if you've got a quarterback that can throw the ball down the field and you've got some receivers that can make plays, then you're going to pass the ball more and you're not going to be married to either scheme. And that's historically what, what this staff has done. Now, where does that leave us? with uh, 2021 Kansas. Well, uh, we don't know the quarterback. Um, Coach isn't going to tip his hat to that, and it's not one of two. It's one of three. Uh, But we'll wait and see, and, you know, we can talk about their strengths if you would like. But we do know that we've got some solid running backs. If you didn't know much about Amari Pesek-Hickson, then get to know this young guy, a local product. Uh, He's got great size, um, a redshirt freshman entering uh, you know, his second year, Velton Gardner is uh, the speedster on the outside. And, of course, we need to talk about number four, Devin Neal. It's, as, uh, you know, one of the positions that I think you can come in and uh, make a mark as a true freshman is a running back. is a skill position, especially when you have Devin's size. And uh, he's just an awesome kid. He's an awesome kid raised by good people. Um and uh, I, I, I worked with his grandmother at South, and she's such a tremendous lady, uh, Marsha McPhail. Uh, so he's from uh, good people. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's great to see a, a Lawrence kid. We've had a lot of great Lawrence kids, and we will certainly have one here. But, you know, and, you know the list could go on from there. But I just mentioned three running backs and uh, uh, an offensive line that should be much improved. So, yeah, we could see uh, a rushing attack to resemble the likes of some of those teams that you had mentioned. Iowa State, you know, certainly is the one that really comes to mind up front. But we'll also need to be more physical at the tight end position. And, uh, you know, the depth chart released today, Mason Fairchild, Trevor Cardell, and Coach was talked about Trevor, so it's not holding in any secrets. He's a athletic kid he plays baseball for coach price but he has had a tremendous fall camp and uh i think he has ability to be a physical kid but also athletic enough to catch uh catch passes mason fairchild is you know stronger bigger and as i'm sure that you've talked about with bmac and others i mean uh coach sleeve the strength and conditioning coach you could certainly make it for, for whatever reason you know, players have bought into him more so than any strength coach we've had since, you know, Coach Dawson, who we lost to K-State. He was a part of the Orange Bowl. But guys look different, Derek. I mean, you've been to some practices for a few minutes, and you'll see it on Friday. We've got guys that look different. And, you know, former players, that was talked about a little bit last year, uh, on the internet or amongst each other in our chat groups that we didn't like seeing people that didn't appear to, to be in shape. And that's not going to be the case this year. And yes, that does spell over not only to better play, but, but guys making a commitment. And the other thing I, I sense this team is going to be playing with more of an edge, you know, I mean, a natural thing to say as a former players, you know what, uh, People have been making fun of you, then go out there and get PO'd, right? Get PO'd and play with an edge. And uh, I think we're going to see some of that this year. So uh, 
you know, that's a lot of talk, but, uh, and it's going to take some time. But it w- I like everything that I'm seeing out of camp. Uh, we are way behind. We'll see, you know, just where we're at. I'm sure the coaches don't exactly know, you know, how the readiness is. I can't imagine how nervous. I'm nervous. I'm nervous, right? Uh, because this is one we should win. We need to win uh, for a million reasons. And uh, it, it's all going to happen on Friday. And, and, and people, you know, you, you're on the radio. You hear from people out there. Um, people think we are basketball town, and we are the number one basketball town. But we have a football following that is so ready for quality football. And uh, I think we are going to be on the path, and they are excited about this. I'm excited about this. And like I've been saying on the air for years, Derek, uh, in wrapping up some heart-wrenching, disappointing, one-sided losses, and I say to people, you know, uh, for those of you that hurt like I hurt, and I think you know me and how much it has hurt me to see us not do well, it's going to feel that much better. When we get it turned around, right? So remember mm-hmm. how you felt because those of you that feel the worst, you're going to feel the best when we get it right. And uh, so I, I think those people are are going to uh, appreciate the future of Kansas football. And, and, and you know, yes, you, you, you want to win, need to win on Friday, but you also need to remember this. I mean, Leipold stays here 10 years and just look at that clock in terms of what this first – week is i mean it, it it's like uh it's like the first 10 seconds of, of the career and uh uh it, it's not going to make or break we sure as heck want it to get off to the right start but we also have to keep in mind this is this is the very very beginning of of uh what we hope is 10 20 year career of lance leipold and and uh a, a kansas football program that'll be competing week in and week out and be bowl eligible and uh, take us to places that we want to be right in the future. And that's, that's not only talking Kansas basketball in December, but we're talking about that bowl game and you can give me a call then and we can talk about the bowl matchup that Kansas has. So there you go. He is David Lawrence. You can hear him on the call right here on KLWN on Friday night, KU taking on South Dakota. So I know if you want to still make it out to the game and you haven't got tickets yet, or you're undecided, about some discounted tickets, David. You got a promo code, right? I do, and uh, what a great night it's going to be! It's going to cool off. Uh, it, it'll be totally shaded across the end of the booth, Kansas Memorial Stadium. And if you want a discount uh, to next to this Friday's game, you go to kuathletics.com/tickets and then click tickets in the upper left-hand corner, and a promotional code tab will pop up. Just enter home opener. That's it, home opener. That's the code. Type that in, and you'll get a special discount that will automatically be applied. So I'll see you at the game in rock chalk, Jayhawk. All right, that was David Lawrence, color analyst for KU Football. You can hear him on Friday night right here on KLWN on the call with Brian Haney, Brandon McAnderson on the sideline. Again, use that promo code. Get some discounted tickets. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.